All right, Salt City, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are starting an Advent series over the next several weeks, looking at different sections of the book of Isaiah. And to start out this Advent series, I, I felt like we needed to have a conversation as a church, and that conversation is about Hallmark Christmas movies. And uh, my, my, my main uh, thing that I want to say about them is that they're, they're terrible, uh, which Drew told me before this that his parents, Greg and Sarah, really love Hallmark movies, and so I hope we can still be friends, guys. We, I appreciate that you're here. I was going to have you vote on kind of which, which end of this you landed, but, you know, church unity and stuff like that, so we're not going to do that. But uh, if, if you're unfamiliar with Hallmark Christmas movies, they are just these low-budget, poorly-acted cheesy movies with the exact same storyline in every single one of them. And there may be, there, there may be, sorry, what? Go ahead. Go ahead. The storyline works. The storyline works. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Okay. All right. I appreciate your feedback. The storyline, the storyline might work. There's a lot of passion around this, apparently. The storyline might work once. But it's like eating a pixie stick, right? Like it goes down and it might taste good for a second, but you eat like five of those and it's, you've got a stomachache coming. It's just kind of, ugh. It's just, it's a lot. Okay, so there's Hallmark Christmas movies and then there's real Christmas movies. Like It's a Wonderful Life. And, and they both have happy endings, but the difference between the two is It's a Wonderful Life is this realistic look at how life actually is. And in the middle of the suffering of the movie, he learns to have joy, to have perspective on what's going on in life. I, I, here's one of my concerns as we dig into Isaiah 9. Uh, it's, a, it's a famous text about Christmas, and it's got these good feels around it as you read it, which is great. We should uh, experience joy around Christmas but Isaiah 9 is, is not hallmark, it's, it's a wonderful life. It's a, it's a very deep and realistic look at life that then at the end of it can change your perspective to joy. And so, so I think to understand some of the depth of what's happening in Isaiah 9, uh, I, I want to look at some of the context, just briefly, some of the history surrounding this. So Isaiah 9 starts with mentioning a couple of these cities that were on the outskirts of Israel. And at the time, what was happening is the Assyrians were about to overtake Israel. So almost certainly by the time Isaiah 9 was written, these cities mentioned likely had been overrun by Assyria. And Assyria was, it was imminent that they would overtake Israel. So this is one of the most terrifying national disasters that you can imagine. Assyria was known for their world-dominating power and their brutality. And so Israel is facing this enemy that is about to take over their land. So imagine that Russia, along with a coalition of Eastern powers, decided to attack the United States and just completely overtook our army. And they actually invaded New York City and took it over. And you turned on the news and there was a Russian flag flying over the Statue of Liberty and Russian troops preparing for an imminent invasion. And there was no army to stop them. That, that's the moment that is happening here for Israel. And not only are they experiencing this very visceral fear about what's going to happen to them and to their families, 
But they're asking these questions about what it means to be the people of God in a moment like this. Has God abandoned them? Does he even see them as his people anymore or does he even exist? You've got to imagine that they have these doubts about the existence of God because if God loved them, then there's no way that something like this could happen, right? And it's into that world, that context, that God speaks the message of hope and joy from Isaiah 9, which to them would have been, I imagine, both comforting that there's some joy, there's still hope, even in the middle of this moment, comforting, but also deeply confusing. Because how could there be joy with what's happening in the world? Now, our physical circumstances are drastically different from their circumstances, but I think our questions are often the same, which is how could God allow this to happen in my life? Or shouldn't life with Jesus be more than this? Why isn't God making the world different? Why isn't he fixing this place yet? And that tension plays out even into this text. So look at verse 2. If you, if you would look with me at Isaiah 9, I'd appreciate that. Look at verse 2. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness on them has light shown. So you've got this imagery of light and darkness which runs all throughout Scripture. Light being the, the kingdom of God, beauty, goodness, wholeness. And then darkness being the kingdom of evil, a place of chaos and brokenness. And he says, on the land is deep darkness. In Hebrew, this means uh, literally something like the death shadow. The, The shadow of death is what he's talking about. And these Israelites, as they heard this, would have known what the death shadow was. It was Assyria. It was this coming invasion And so it applied very directly to them, but this is poetic language that I I think applies to all people everywhere, not just specifically to them. It applies to all humanity. You know what it is to live in this world? It's to live in the death shadow. That's part of what it means to to live here, where life is filled at times with fear, with pain, with suffering, where we're completely out of control of our own lives, often desperately scraping and vying for control to feel safe, but often feeling the reality that we aren't. It's a world where holidays are not always merry and bright, but they're often incredibly painful because of the people that are missing around the dinner table. Where there there are moments, the holidays of deep loneliness. In a more literal sense, this world is the death shadow. In that everything on this planet, including ourselves, is decaying. It's dying. I don't know if I should admit this publicly, but I'm going to. This week, we found a tub of cottage cheese in the back corner of the refrigerator that we didn't know was there. And it expired in August. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even look at it. Uh, because there's few things creepier in my mind than expired cottage cheese. It's just, it's just tough, right? Uh, look, that's what happens to anything that you let sit long enough. Because the world is losing energy, it's decaying, and we are a part of that decay. It just takes a little bit longer for us, but we also are rotting. That's part of what it means to live here. Life is not hallmark. It wasn't for Israel, and it's not for us, but here is God's message to that people. 
They're experiencing the imminent danger of Assyria, the fear for their lives. Here's his message. Light will come. The darkness will not be forever. A light will dawn on your death shadow. And in fact, the presence of the shadow is evidence of the sun. And God will come to rescue you. There is hope. Hope for a world, hope for a kingdom, hope for an existence that is different than the one that we see in the world. And that existence is found in God alone. And so what that means is that the Christian response to life is this stubborn resistance to doubt and fear. This stubborn hope. This relentless hope. And I think often Christians can be the one that are, ones that are most dire about the world and complain quickly about the apparent difficulties of the world. And in some senses, that's right. We do understand the depravity and brokenness of the world. But in another sense, we're forgetting that, that this is not the end of the story. And so we of all people should be able to stand in hope and say that there's goodness coming. And that we're hoping and waiting on him even when it seems like it's against all evidence because we trust him. And that's what Isaiah 9 is about. It's about what we're hoping for. The life that we're hoping for. It's about who our hope is in and then how that hope can be realized. What we're hoping for, who the hope is in, and how that hope is realized. Verses 2 through 5 is the life that we're hoping for. It's comparing and contrasting life with God as opposed to life without God. Verse 6 is how we can access that life, who our hope is in. And verse 7 is how our hope can be realized. So let's start with what we're hoping for. Again, that's verses 2 through 5. And uh, it breaks down in this comparing and contrasting life with God and life without him like this. Verse 3 is about how we can have joy instead of anxiety and fear. Verse 4 is about how we can have freedom instead of oppression. And verse 5 is about how we can have peace instead of conflict. So let's look at joy instead of anxiety and fear when we live with God. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So the top part of this verse is talking about the concept of joy and how we enter it. The, the second half is two illustrations of that joy, uh, dividing the spoil and the time of harvest. So let's look first at where it says, you have increased its joy, it being the nation, the people of God. It's saying God has increased his people's joy. Let's just sit with this for a second. Increasing your joy is one of the primary things that God is out to do in the world. The the creator of everything, the all-knowing one, the all-powerful one, one of the primary things that he wants is your joy. Because he is glad and salvation is you entering into his gladness. And the end to which all of history is building is the eternal, unending joy of the people of God. God is out to increase your joy. It's beautiful. This week, uh, my son Graham turned three 
And so it became birthday week. We did various things. But one of the things that we did is I, I just took him on a quick, quick trip. Or what we were attempting to do is get donuts, okay? So we were trying to get donuts, but then the bakeries around us were closed, which was a bummer. But then we got rerouted to Perkins and just rolled into Perkins like two old men hanging out. And it was great. And so Graham and I go into Perkins, and the person who was helping us uh, just like fell in love with, with Graham. He just like melted her, right? And so uh, he initially ordered his cookie, and so she brought out the cookie. And then she came back a little bit later on her own initiative and was like, I just feel like he needs some free pie. Does he want some free pie? And the answer to that is yes. Now, did he eat the pie or did his parents eat the pie is a different story, but uh, he needed some free pie. And then when she came out to bring him the pie, he, he asked her her name, and then she just like visibly, she just like crumbled. Like, uh, and so then a minute later, she came out with a cup of ice cream, and she was like, I just feel like he needs some ice cream. It's like, okay, he's had a lot of sugar, but you bet, bring on the ice cream, right? So I was, I was thinking about this. We just had this awesome time. And then, and then I got the bill back, and she didn't charge us for the cookie, the pie, or the ice cream. It was just all free. It was amazing. And I was thinking about this. I'm like, why, why is she doing this? She doesn't even know this kid. So she, it's not like she you know, loves him or knows him or whatever. What's going on here? Well, the answer is, is she was enjoying his joy. She was delighting in getting to bring him joy. That's what God is like. He delights in your delight. He is glad and loves it when you get to experience his gladness. He is out to increase your joy. And the illustrations that he gives for this are those two that I, I mentioned um, the, the warrior dividing up the spoils and the farmer collecting on the harvest. So let's take the warrior dividing up the spoils. So, so imagine a warrior at this time. Uh, you, you're standing in a line with a sword and a shield right across from a battlefield from your enemy. Can you imagine the utter terror of that moment? Not only are you uncertain what's going to happen to your life, but you don't know if you guys are going to be able to achieve victory and what will happen to your land and to your family, it's life and death. Everything that you care about is on the line. And it's just uncertain, the angst and the fear. And then you enter the battle and the fear just escalates as at any moment you could be killed. But then imagine the moment where your nation wins and you look around the battlefield and you begin to just celebrate. And in a moment, your anxiety and your fear just crumble into joy. That's the analogy given here. He gives me another, another analogy of the harvest. And we're not as much of an agrarian society, so we don't understand the, the weight of this. But, but imagine, like, you feed your family on what you can grow. And so imagine the angst of that. You're worrying about those plants all year. You're checking on them. You're, you're trying to pay attention to the weather. You're, you're concerned about what's going to happen. But then imagine the moment that you get everything harvested and there's enough for you and your family to live. Imagine the feast. Imagine the celebration. Imagine just the deep breath that comes with that. I got to experience this a little bit over Thanksgiving. My grandpa has farmed the vast majority of his life and he has a lot of friends who are farmers. And I guess this year it was very much in doubt how the crop was going to come out. The, the weather wasn't working out the way that they had hoped. 
And so all year they were concerned and there was fear and there was anxiety and they were all talking about it. And the harvest was beyond what any of them expected. And so my grandpa is just seeing this as a miracle directly from the hand of God. And before our Thanksgiving meal, he's praying and through tears of gratitude is thanking God for providing for him and for his friends. That's the the type of moment that this is talking about. That's what it's like to know God. Now, a lot of us, our experience of the world is an experience of, of angst and fear and, and nervousness and, and trying to, to grapple for control over our life because if we can control whatever aspect we're trying to control, then we don't have to be afraid. We, we know, or at least we think we know, how things are going to come out. And so we experience life very differently because we don't realize that the outcome of our life has already been secured by Christ. That was the difference in the battlefield is you didn't know if you were going to win and so maybe you really were going to die. That's the difference before the harvest is you don't know if you're going to be able to feed your family. And so it's terrifying. But the moment you realize that there's been victory, that there's been a harvest, the only response is celebratory joy. And what this is saying is, is Jesus has secured the victory. We see the evidence of that at Christmas. And yes, he hasn't come back the second time yet, but he can talk about salvation in past tense because it's that secure. And so what that means for us is we can navigate life as Christians the way my grandpa navigates life with this just abundant joy and gratitude towards God, the peace of experiencing the the security of our salvation and our life in him. The outcome is secure. Therefore, we don't have to be anxious and afraid. We can have joy and rest and peace in him. We can live with that attitude. Next, in God, we can have freedom instead of oppression. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Jesus came to break the power of all oppressors. He hates the evil of oppression And he will reign one day. That's what we're going to talk about in a minute. He will reign one day where goodness will be the reality of the world and not oppression. That's what he's like. That's who he is. Now, the oppressor for the initial audience was more obvious to them. It was the Assyrians. And so one of the questions is for us, what is the oppression that Jesus can break? I uh, Jesse and I watched this movie over the weekend called The Alpinist, which is about this climber who hikes some of the most difficult summits in the world. And he does this crazy mixed climbing where he's climbing on rocks and then snow and then just vertical sheets of ice. And a decent amount of this is without a rope. So let me do the math for you. You fall, you die. That's crazy. And so you're watching him just hanging from this vertical sheet of ice with no rope, and it's terrifying, and it's amazing, right? It's this incredible feat that he's accomplishing, but you can't help but asking, why is he doing this? Is it really worth it? And they start to interview his friends and his family who talk about how amazing this skill is, but are also just afraid for his life every time he goes into the mountains. He's risking everything, and there's confusion around, why are you doing this? Is it worth it? And, and when they ask him about it, Why do you do this? He essentially says, freedom. Because when I'm in the mountains, I feel like I have no restraints on me. I feel free. And my mind feels freed up from sort of the chaos of of life. 
and um, I just can be present. And it's how I experience freedom, which is a beautiful sentiment. But here's the problem. He didn't realize that that freedom didn't last unless he went back out into the mountains. And he progressively starts doing riskier and riskier hikes while the people in his life are terrified. But he has to have that feeling of freedom. And he doesn't realize that, that this hobby is now starting to take over his life. And here's the, the end of the story. Okay, spoiler alert, but it's, it's still worth watching. It's not a happy ending. He actually died in an avalanche. And, and this is the reality. Anytime you pursue anything in this life to try to find freedom, it will end up enslaving you. You, you look to your success or your career, or your productivity. You look to your family. You look to a relationship. You look to sex. You, you look to money. You look to anything, even good things. When they become the ultimate thing, they inevitably will capture and enslave your soul. Where you will need that thing to experience freedom, but the only thing it will deliver is death. That's how it works. When these, these secondary things become ultimate things, they consume you everything except for Jesus Christ. He is the one person that can set you free. Because instead of consuming you, he was consumed for you. He took on your slavery, put the shackles on his own wrist so that you could be free. And Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Now that verse is hard for me because I often experience his yoke as difficult, as heavy, not light. And some of you might experience that too, where you feel like following Jesus is just hard. It's heavy. But this is what I want you to know. If that yoke is heavy, it's not Jesus' yoke. It's something else that you've carried in. It's not Christ. He came to set you free. He came to liberate you. He gets in the yoke with you and he carries it for you because he's strong. That's what Jesus does. And in him, we can find ultimate freedom where nothing else has to define us. We don't have to go there for our identity because we have him. In God, we can find peace instead of conflict. Verse five, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now this sounds like battle language. It sounds kind of epic, almost like Braveheart or something like that, right? But I want you to pay attention to what he's saying. He's saying that in Christ, the objects of war will be so unnecessary that you can just burn them. Objects of war will become obsolete because Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peace. He is bringing a world where war and conflict and fighting and discrimination and hate is gone. It has no place in his kingdom, which means these old methods of war will be obsolete and war and conflict will themselves be obsolete. It's like if you took a machine gun or some other form of war and showed it to a person on that future day in the kingdom of Jesus, they would have no idea what it is. It'd be like showing a teenager a cassette tape. They'd just be confused. Like, what is this thing? There'd be no context surrounding it because war is gone. Peace. Now, our concept of peace is the absence of something, the absence of conflict or war or maybe pain, which is, which is great. And that is true. If you're in Christ and you have the presence of conflict in your life, bitterness, 
frustration, anger, brokenness in your relationship, Jesus melts all of that away. There's, there's no place for that in your life as a Christian. For some of you, as you go home over Christmas, maybe some of that conflict will arise. You do not have to give into that conflict. As much as it's dependent on you, you can be at peace. Now, our concept is about the absence of conflict, which is great, but the concept here is the, is the Hebrew word of shalom, which shalom doesn't just mean the absence of something. It means the presence of of rich goodness. It means completeness. It means wholeness. It means the fullness of beauty. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what every person you've ever met wants? Wholeness, completeness is offered in Christ. But that brings us back to the initial tension that we talked about at the beginning which is that we have access to this beautiful life, a life of peace, of wholeness, of shalom, of joy, of hope in him. And we can access, start to access that life now, but it's in the middle of a world full of brokenness and fear and pain and suffering. And so how do those two things come together? Well, there must be a bridge, a bridge between heaven and earth. Something to bridge the gap between our brokenness and the beauty of this coming kingdom. A bridge that deals with the suffering of our world, but also starts to bring heaven into this world. Enter a divine child, a God-man. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the one who our hope is in. Wonderful Counselor means supernatural, divine wisdom. Mighty God, it means warrior God, this, this ferocious protective nature of who God is. And, and if that's frightening to you, he's not just the warrior God, he's the everlasting father. If you're in him, his anger is not towards you, but it's in defense of you. He protects you like a good dad and he is the prince of peace. Do you see the genius of what's happening here? He's ascribing divine attributes to a human baby. This, this remarkable combination of ultimate holiness and justice in the nearness of human flesh, the transcendence of God in the relatability of a child, protection and strength of a father in the vulnerability of a baby. It's, it's genius. None of us could have thought of this. We couldn't have dreamed it up. It's the beauty of the supernatural wisdom of God that he can come to us and be near to us and relate to us but still be God so that he can save us. My favorite quote on the incarnation is from Bono. Yes, Bono. And I, I think I've shared this before but I, I just love it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read it to you again. The idea that God, if there's a force of love and logic in the universe, that it would seek to explain itself is amazing enough that it would seek to explain itself and describe itself by becoming a child, born in straw and poverty, a child. Just the poetry. Unknowable love, unknowable power describes itself as the most vulnerable. And I saw the genius of this utter genius. Love needs to find form. Intimacy needs to be whispered. To me, it makes sense. 
essence has to manifest itself. It's inevitable. Love has to become an action or something concrete. It would have to happen. There must be an incarnation. Love must be made flesh. It's genius. But we tend to to lose the genius because we want God to eradicate the pain of this life. We tend to question him because of suffering and the mess of this life. And we want him to prove his love to us by making this life better now. We want him to fulfill his promises. But God, because of his purposes, will not do that yet. I want to just briefly look at 2 Peter 3.9. It says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. We tend to believe that he's, we, we, why is he taking so long to come back, to get us to make this place better? But he's not being slow, he's being patient. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, God wants the entire world. He wants to rescue every single part of this place and every single human being on it, which means that he's being patient in his return because he wants to offer us ample opportunity to repent, for people to be saved, to come back to him. And so he won't take us out of this mess, but he's still proven his love for us in a different way, in a better way. Instead of taking us out of this mess, he came into the mess. And, and I don't totally know the reason for, for the suffering of this world, but I know the explanation can't be that God doesn't love us or that he's not good because he came into the world and he suffered on our behalf. A God that isn't loving doesn't do that. He came into our mess so that he could have compassion on us. And then he experienced eternal separation from God in a moment. He took what would have come to us on himself as an act of ultimate love. He defines love in his being and in his behavior. He came to get sinful people. He had compassion on us. He didn't leave us. And we have an advantage that the original hearers of Isaiah 9 didn't have, is we don't have to just anticipate the coming of a child. We got that child. He really was born. We have the history, and we can know him. We have the quotation where Jesus introduces his ministry by quoting Isaiah 9 and saying that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus came. The word Advent means coming. It's the anticipation of the coming one. And so in some senses in Advent, we're reenacting the anticipation of Israel before Jesus came. But also, along with them, we are still waiting. Because even though we got Jesus the first time, we're still anticipating his second coming where he makes the world right again. And we have aspects of his joy and his hope and his peace now, but we don't have the fullness of it. And so we wait And that waiting is inherent in what it means to be a Christian, this hopeful, joyful, anticipating against all hope. God's people have always done that. They've always been waiting on the Lord to bring redemption and salvation, and we're a part of that reality. And we understand that a little bit with Christmas, right? Part of the joy of Christmas is the buildup. It's the anticipation, 
Pretty much every kid ever has asked their parents in some form, hey, would you get me for Christmas? Or has gone under the tree and like shaken things and felt it and tried to figure out what it is, right? Did you guys do that as a kid? So kids do that, but imagine this scenario. Imagine that a kid asks his mom, hey, what'd you get me for Christmas, like a month before Christmas? And the mom's like, oh, I got you a bike. Don't tell me that. Like, I asked you, but I don't want you to tell me, right? It would ruin it in a lot of ways. Why? Because the anticipation is a part of the joy. And so we are entering into the participation, uh, the anticipation of the coming joy. And that anticipation, that waiting is a part of the genius, the art, the beauty, and the design of God. And we don't fully understand it, but we enter into it in faith, hoping against hope that Jesus will come and redeem the world. And when he does, it'll be that much better as a result. And this is how he will redeem the world. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The day is coming where Jesus will be the visible ruler and reigner of all things. The government will sit on his shoulders and the government will not be this starting and stopping, flailing attempt at sin management that it is now. The government will be the kingdom of God. Heaven will meet earth in him. It will be the place of shalom, absolute beauty, completeness. And that will be the place where the increasing goodness and peace of God will not end. His joy will continue out into eternity forever and we will bathe in his goodness and gladness and justice and righteousness will expand throughout the, the earth from this time forth and forevermore until then we stand in stubborn hope for that coming day we hope we wait we anticipate let's pray Jesus thank you that you came and that you proved that not only are you the promise maker, but you are the promise keeper. You always come through on your promises. And in Isaiah 9 and all throughout scripture, you have promised us this glorious future, this eternal hope. And you love increasing the joy of your people. And so we hope we wait on you, Jesus, and we thank you that you were willing to come to us. We never could have climbed up to heaven to get you. You had to come to us, and you came down, Jesus, and you got us. You didn't leave us in our mess, in our fear, in our pain, in our sin. You came and got us, and we praise you for that, and we want to anticipate your coming this Advent. We want to worship you. We want to enjoy you. We want to be full of hope in you and honor you in that way. But we also, we wait, God, for you to come back and to make this world your kingdom. We want to live with you. We want the government to be on your shoulders because you are the only one that is good. And we wait for you to make the world good, but we believe you, God. Help our unbelief. We believe you that even in the pain, even in the fear, even in the doubt that you will come, you will fulfill your promises. And so we stand in hope 
waiting for you, Jesus. Please come back. Come back and get us. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.